Before we get started with our new season, I want to tell you about our referral program. All podcasters know the best way to grow your show is through word of mouth. So we created a referral link that makes it easy to share the podcast by text, email, or DM to anyone you know who could use a little dose of inspiration for civic engagement and our collective future. Follow the link in our show notes to go to our referral page. You can easily share a unique code directly from there. Once you share our show with five friends who download the podcast, I'll send you a handwritten thank you note and a future hindsight button to thank you for your support. If you share it with 10 friends who download an episode, I'll send you a branded Future Hindsight Moleskin Notebook. Yep, a real Moleskin Notebook with our logo on it. Thank you for spreading the word and thank you for listening. Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm your host, Mila Atmos. Each week, I speak with citizen changemakers who spark civic engagement in our society. Our guest today is Dr. Robert P. Jones. He's the CEO of Public Religion Research Institute, or PRRI, and a leading scholar and commentator on religion, values, and public life. His most recent book is White Too Long, The Legacy of White Supremacy in American Christianity. This episode kicks off our season on systemic racism and structural inequality in the United States. When we conceived of the 10 interviews that you'll be hearing in the coming weeks, we didn't know just how apt the season would be. We're not surprised, of course, by the attack on the Capitol on January 6, but it showed us all just how necessary it is for us to take a hard look at who we are and how our society functions. We hope this season will shed light on our history, on how unjust our systems really are, and where we can find pathways for unity and justice. Now that the Biden administration is sworn into office, we think it's the perfect time to examine what's possible and to dig into the work that lays before us in white Christian churches, at the workplace, housing, healthcare, education, and more. Among white Christians overall, what one might expect, right, is that church attendance mitigates holding racist attitudes. But it turns out that the research doesn't really support that. And that among white Christians overall, at best, church attendance makes no difference. But when you look specifically at the white Christian subgroup of evangelicals, it does turn out that attending more frequently actually increases the likelihood that one holds more racist attitudes. We talk about the long history of white Christianity as a conduit for white supremacy and the way this worldview stunts morality, as well as understanding why reconciliation is an inferior framework to justice. Let's listen in. Thank you for joining us. Thanks. Well, thanks for having me. Well, it's wonderful to have you back on the show and to talk about your latest book. It's really terrific. I really, really enjoyed it. The primary premise is that American white Christianity is a conduit for white supremacy. How does that work in practice? Well, that's right. Usually when we hear the words, for example, civil rights and church, what most people immediately think of are African-American churches, you know, that played a very strong role in fighting for black equality and civil rights. But what very few people think about is the role that white Christian churches played in resisting that work and, and in fighting um, actually equality 
for African-Americans. So the book sets out to really tell that story that has really been, I think, swept under the rug and suppressed a bit, um, overlooked at, at best. Um, but, if, you know, a close read of, of, of the history, really, of the country shows that, you know, white Christians haven't just been kind of complacent or complicit in this problem, but because they've been the nation's dominant cultural power, that white Christians have really been the primary force sustaining this project of perpetuating white supremacy, and that this has really framed the entire American story. You tell a lot of stories, unflinching stories, about how white churches have been really instrumental in cementing white supremacy, but also in perpetuating it. In the beginning, they thought that white Christians, especially in the South, they were the chosen people. And I think to some degree, they still believe that. And after they lost the war, they kind of pivoted. And then I think this is in a way how the institutionalization of the supremacy of whites culturally started to take hold. Can you tell us a little bit more about what lost cause means and how it was practiced in churches and how it translates to today? Yeah. Well, this is a particular worldview that came out of the Confederate South, but it's hard, I think, today for us to kind of imagine how strongly this sense of white supremacy and and literally that whites were created to be the dominant and superior race in the country. I think for many modern sensibilities, it's hard to understand just how entrenched that idea was and and was justified largely by Christian principles. Um, So, you know, the founding of my denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention, was founded in 1845 explicitly to assert the idea that owning slaves and enslaving other human beings on the basis of the color of their skin was a perfectly fine thing to do as a Christian, and not just for rank and file Christians, but for clergy and missionaries. That's the founding story of my home denomination. So this worldview, that's very much a hierarchical worldview that sees human beings created in strata or even in castes, really, is the way to think about this, with white Christians at the top of the order, was very, very strong. And so if you listen to the sermons preached around the beginning of the Confederacy, for example, Basil Manley Sr., was a minister, uh, one of the founders of the Southern Baptist Convention. He's the first president of Southern Seminary, which is the seminary founded by the Southern Baptist Convention to kind of hold this worldview. If you listen to his sermons, his prayers at the founding of the Confederacy, you see this coming through very strongly. So it was kind of a shock to that worldview when the South lost the Civil War. So this idea of the lost cause comes out of that sense of loss and grief, really, of being convinced that this hierarchical order and enslaving other human beings was part of God's divine plan for human society that then went down in defeat with such enormous loss of life. So the lost cause was this idea that even though the the war had been lost, yet they didn't give up on this idea and that they'd ultimately be vindicated. So if you look at, for example, one of the biggest monuments in Richmond is to Jefferson Davis There's a a statue at the top of this monument that's five stories tall. It's a bronze statue of a woman with her finger pointed toward the heavens. And right under it in Latin are the words, God will vindicate. And this was put up, uh, by the way, um, not uh, during the Civil War, but in the early part of the 20th century as a continued assertion that even in the early 1900s, this view of society and white supremacy 
as part of you know a Christian social order would be vindicated. I think this is really evident today in the way that Trump, especially, and many who are his biggest supporters, communicate with American whites all over the country. And I think this is so deeply embedded in their culture. I can see now when people tell me, oh, he was sent from God, that this is the man who is supposed to serve the vindication and to make the world right again. What you said about the lost cause is that after the South lost the war, they started to think about the world as being unredeemable until Christ comes back again. And I thought this was, in my mind, sort of like the clincher in terms of how you can reconcile your personal belief with not having to do anything in social justice, you know, that your relationship to God is purely personal and that whatever happens in society, whatever injustices happen there are separate from you. Can you explain how this works? Whenever you've got a kind of theological shift, you really always want to ask the question, well, why this shift and why now? And we do see this shift from a very optimistic view of human society. And if you go back to those pre-Civil War sermons, there is this idea that the Confederate kind of social order was, in fact, the realization of the pinnacle of human civilization. It's like the kingdom of God was being realized here on earth in the Confederate States of America. And the defeat then presents this real challenge to that view. So there was a kind of this gradual shift in theology from an idea that uh, the job of Christians was to build the ideal kingdom of heaven on earth to one that really fit the times. So the shift was that human society is on a downward decline that's only going to be fixed with the second coming of Jesus in the end times, but not by humans themselves. And so what that does is it shifts human responsibility away from building kind of God's kingdom on earth and more to a kind of inner kind of piety and really a sense of waiting instead of action. And I think that's one of the markers of evangelical theology to this day is this kind of very individualistic way and very inward way of thinking about religion and these questions of making human society better, of social justice, getting rid of systemic inequality, those really fall by the wayside from this worldview. So we still see this having very, very powerful effects even today. One of the things that you said repeatedly in the book is that actually this self-induced delusion of white supremacy over hundreds of years has really stunted the morality of whites in America. What do you mean by that? I became clear on this point, really, from reading African-American theologians and writers. Martin Luther King, for example, in Letter from Birmingham Jail, has a great line. And uh, he's writing a letter to a group of moderate religious leaders. So he's not writing to the far right or the kind of hyper- segregationist. He's writing to people who are seen to be moderates on the issue of race and integration. And he's writing with such disappointment to them because they're saying, look, you're moving too fast. We need more time. And, you know, he's writing there demanding, you know, uh, civil rights in the present and not in some part in the future. But this line that he has in there, I think, is so telling where he is reflecting on how many churches there are in Birmingham for white Christians. I mean, it's a very religious city, and yet there's no great uprising on the side of civil rights and standing for equal rights for African-Americans and social justice. He says, who are these white Christians 
sitting safely behind their anesthetizing stained glass windows. He's got his finger right on it there. Because of this, I think, worldview and kind of inward turn, instead of enlivening white consciences to injustice around them, that for so many, white Christian theology has served really to anesthetize, to blunt white Christian consciences, and to really make them think that injustices right outside the doors of the church have nothing to do with the gospel. You did a good amount of research in surveys, in addition to the historical aspect that you bring to the book. And when you did these surveys, I was really surprised that essentially the people who go to church are more likely to be racist. And I think that speaks to both the lost cause that we talked to earlier. But what happens inside churches that would make somebody more racist? Well, let me make two points here. If I look at the other two groups of white Christians, white mainline Protestants and white Catholics, who have a very different history than the one we've just been talking about, these attitudes we've been describing, a moral blindness to white supremacy and the way that white Christian theology has been supporting it, actually are quite widely shared even in white mainline Protestant and white Catholic circles, again, far outside the South. And so that's that was pretty striking. And then the other thing you point to is church attendance. And among white Christians overall, what one might expect, right, is that church attendance mitigates holding racist attitudes. But it turns out that the research doesn't really support that, and that among white Christians overall, at best, church attendance makes no difference. But when you look specifically at the white Christian subgroup of evangelicals, it does turn out that attending more frequently actually increases the likelihood that one holds more racist attitudes. So we look at higher attending versus lower attending white evangelicals. The relationship between holding racist attitudes and identifying as a white evangelical is actually stronger among those who attend more frequently. So in your mind, what is the promise for whites if they can release themselves from this worldview, from this belief? And in what way do you think we can grow as a society? I think the problem is so deep. This is the version of Christianity that lands on American shores. This is not an American invention. It goes at least back to the late 1400s with this thing called the Doctrine of Discovery, which was a doctrine put out by a pope that basically says, you know, if, if any explorer from a Western European country encounters a people that is not Christian, then they have the right to claim the land for Christianity and for the Western European country that they're representing. So this sense of kind of Christian conquest that is wrapped all up with the superiority of whites and Western Europeans is really built into the DNA, even as it lands on North American shores uh, for the first time. I don't want to be too quick to say this is going to get fixed. I mean, I think this is going to be a generational effort to fix things. And the title of the book, I should say, White Too Long, comes from also, a, a strong indictment from James Baldwin, um, writing in the New York Times. He, like King, I think, had these hopes that whites and white Christians in particular would stand up for civil rights in a way that it never happened. I think he's writing from kind of a place of despair and worry. And he, he says this, I will flatly say that the bulk of this country's white population impresses me and has so impressed me for a very long time as being beyond any conceivable hope of moral rehabilitation. They have been white, if I may so put it, too long. They have been married to the lie of white supremacy too long. 
The effect on their personalities, their lives, their grasp of reality has been as devastating as the lava which so memorably immobilized the citizens of Pompeii. They are unable to conceive that their version of reality, which they want me to accept, is an insult to my history and a parody of theirs and an intolerable violation of myself. This is a very deep, deep problem. It's one that I think is only beginning to be reckoned with. But I do think I would say this. I'm more hopeful that the work is going to be taken up now than I was a little bit more than a year ago when I turned in the manuscript for the book. And and the thing that has happened, of course, in between is all of the protests for racial justice around George Floyd. And so I, I do, despite, I think, the ugliness of some of this, see um, that it at least is coming to the surface, at least is being dealt with. And just two quick examples, you know, that I've seen, I mentioned the monuments in, in Richmond. And if you had asked me when I turned in the book, you know, how long do you think those will be around? I might have said, you know, I think it may take another generation for all these to be removed. And four of the five statues at the heart of those monuments have now been taken down all in one summer. The fifth one to Robert E. Lee is scheduled to come down. My home state of Mississippi, I think in this past election, uh, voted to remove the Confederate battle flag and to accept a new flag for the first time. Um, I see these things as symbolic, but I, I think these symbols matter and they indicate that you know, this can that's been kicked down the road generation after generation may be finally coming into focus. Hi, everyone. Now that we've kicked off our new season, we hope you'll consider supporting Future Hindsight. As you know, we pour our hearts and souls into the show to bring you eye-opening and thought-provoking conversations with citizen changemakers every week. We hope that you're inspired to participate in this democracy. We also need your support. Join our premium Patreon subscription, The Civics Club. You can get early access and ad-free versions of all of our shows every week, read episode transcripts, and connect with me and the Future Hindsight team. For just $1.99 a month, you can support our indie podcast and, most importantly, become part of the Future Hindsight community. Head over to patreon.com slash futurehindsight to sign up. Thank you and see you there. The summer, things moved so rapidly in ways that I think is almost inconceivable, like you said. I was thinking about your previous book, The End of White Christian America, while I was reading this one. And I thought, you know, one of the things that you mentioned in the other book is how much the percentage of white Christian Americans have shrunk as a total of the population, and yet how they continue to be essentially even, you know, as a percentage of voter turnout. And now that this book is out, I thought, you know, how did you go from the end of White Christian America to this book? What was your inspiration to go and write this book after that one? Yeah, um, well, you know, first, I, I think those trends have, have continued. You know, when I wrote that book, the data I had in front of me was actually 2014 data. And so I was mapping a decline in the population of white Christians from being 54% of the population to 47 percent of the population uh, between 2008 and 2014. Our latest numbers show that it's continued to drop. It's now 44 percent of the population. So it's gone from 57 percent 2008 to 44 percent today. And I think these things are linked, right? So as this population has shrunk, white Christians have realized they are no longer the demographic majority in the country. I think that's actually fed this sense of fear, of grievance, of loss, um, that is, I think, fueled the more apocalyptic response 
from this group. President Trump has certainly encouraged that, has really talked about, you know, when he uses language like, we're going to lose our country. They're taking our country away from us. If you ask yourself, who is the our, who is the us, President Trump really has in mind the sense of a white Christian country um, when he when he's talking about those things. The fact that we really crossed the threshold from being a majority white Christian country, demographically speaking, to one that no longer is, has been part of the energy and, and the fears that we've seen so strongly expressed. Even though white Christians have declined as a portion of the population, they've not declined very much at all as a proportion of voters, that they tend to turn out at rates higher than non-white Christian voters do. And so they've been able to keep their numbers fairly high. And particularly for white evangelicals, they've continued to be relevant because they are so lopsidedly active in Republican. They still make up about a third of Republican voters. So it's it's a pretty big block, um, mostly because they vote about 80% Republican. That book kind of explains the context. I wanted to take a deeper dive into the dynamics uh, and particularly the way that kind of race and white supremacy and the defense of this worldview of white supremacy, that the lives of white people are more valuable, more valuable in the sight of God, more valuable in society than the lives of non-white Americans. And I think we see that in so many policies even today. But I wanted to take a deeper dive to kind of really explore that problem and to kind of explain it from the inside out. So you mentioned earlier that it's going to take a long time to find a way to have a society that is no longer racist. And one of the things that you mentioned in the book is that reconciliation is really an inferior framework to justice. Can you explain why that is? Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. I really learned this firsthand from these two churches in Macon, Georgia, which is the First Baptist Church of Christ. And there's actually two, they're both churches called First Baptist Church, First Baptist Church on New Street, First Baptist Church of Christ. The reason why they're both called First Baptist Church is because they used to be one church in the 1820s that was white people who were enslaving others and enslaved people coming to church together. And the church looked like white sitting in front, um, African-Americans sitting in the back. That was the early beginning of the church. It eventually split and the the African-American church got its independence. But they have in the last seven years really been trying to think about how to not merge the churches, uh, but really come into community and to talk about the history. One of the things that they came to and that I learned from kind of studying their example was that this frame of reconciliation, it has been a favored frame from white churches and, and whites wanting to do work around issues of race. But it, it basically kind of reaches too far too fast, I think is the way I would put it. And it's a pretty good deal for whites if you can immediately reach for reconciliation. But what it skips way too often are the questions of justice and repair. When I talked to Reverend Scott Dickinson, who's the pastor of the white church there, he basically said, look, we've stopped talking about reconciliation and we're trying to talk about justice. And how do we repair the damage? Uh, What does justice look like? And to tell the truth about our history. And he basically said, look, if we do that long enough, reconciliation is going to be the outgrowth of that. But it's not something we reach for directly. And I, I think that's exactly right. That for way too long, whites have kind of demanded forgiveness, frankly, but without willing to do the hard work of really talking about justice and how we repair the damage. So as an everyday white Christian, let's say, what are two things I could be doing to demand that we occupy ourselves with justice instead of reconciliation? 
it really does come down to a commitment to two simple things. One is telling the truth um, and telling a truer history of how we got to where we are, and two, loving our neighbors, and that that has to extend to our African-American neighbors if you're a white Christian. And part of that truth-telling part, I think, is both doing personal work. I did a couple of really basic things. I um, just you know, did some more genealogical research, try to get around my family's history, and including uncovering that we get our initial land in Georgia that came from Native Americans being forcibly removed from that land so it can be given to white people to come and settle on these nice, neat 200-acre rectangles. So getting clear on that, getting clear on kind of role in supporting slavery, supporting segregation, and even today being fairly blind or indifferent to mass incarceration, or to make it really contemporary to the fact that black and brown people are dying at rates twice that of whites from COVID-19 and being indifferent to that. So I think there's some ways to kind of be really concrete about it. And I think to start conversations in local church settings, can we have a conversation about about white supremacy and really wrestle with that with that question? And at the church level, I mean, it can be really practical. Even if every white Christian church asks a simple question about why is our church building located where it is? If it's in a kind of older urban setting, you can bet that it's probably there by zoning restrictions, a white part of town that was part of probably a restrictive zoning agreement that prohibited African-Americans and other non-whites from, from living in that neighborhood. Uh, many times churches were anchors for those kinds of, of, of agreements. If it's out in the suburbs, did it follow a pattern of white flight that was spurred by integrating public schools? And is that why it's out there where it is? So I, I think there's some really practical things. Once you really start the conversation the rest of it comes pretty quickly. I, th I think the hardest thing is just getting it started. Um, but once you kind of pull that thread, I think it, a world opens up for those who are willing to kind of see it. Um, you know, it's there. And there's lots of good resources. I hope the book is one and um, lots of other ones that, there that can also, I think, help push people's thinking along. Yes, I think uh, key here is that you need to be willing to do it, um, as yeah. you just said. So let's say you were talking to somebody who doesn't want to do this work, who's really not interested, what would you say to explain to this person how white supremacy is warping white identity? I think understanding what white supremacy is, is part of the thing that's not just, not even primarily about white racial violence. It's not just about lynchings and the KKK, but it really is about every place where whites have put their lives above the lives of others on the basis of race. And so every zoning restriction, every school restriction, who could get what kind of job, any city you look at today, you can still see the history of racially restrictive covenants and, and where whites and non-whites live. Um, those cities are very geographically segregated uh, today. Almost any health outcome you look at, wealth disparities, all of these things are still in our society kind of run along lines of race. So I, I think if there's not just a willful denial and, or a willful ignorance there, I mean, the evidence is there if you kind of take the time to look at it. And then to ask the real question, like, where was the white Christian church at all these critical junctures uh, when these decisions were being made? Yeah, that's a good question. Looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? Hmm. You know, I, I think the fact that we're having a conversation about white supremacy in this country makes me hopeful. That's a very hard conversation 
I think that that itself gives me hope. I mean, when I was thinking about the book and titling the book, you know, I thought hard about putting the word white supremacy in the title of the book because it wasn't really something that was a part of the conversation, particularly in white circles. One quick story I'll tell to, to, to wrap up uh, is that, you know, I mentioned the monuments coming down in Richmond. One of the monuments that uh, was on one of these traffic circles where one of the big monuments was this First Baptist Church of Richmond. And that church moved there in the 1920s intentionally to be nearer a Confederate monument. It also has a bell, a historic bell that you know goes way back before the Civil War that was part of the original church before it moved that they brought along with them. They offered that bell to the Confederate Army to be melted down and turned into cannon to defend slavery. But this past year, as the monument on that traffic circle was being taken down, one of the members of the church asked the pastor if they could ring the bell to celebrate the removal of that monument. So that arc, I think, is one that I hope we'll see repeated of, of a church that was so committed to a Christian defense of slavery and white supremacy that they were willing to offer up part of their church to kill people, and now rang that same bell in celebration of a monument to white supremacy coming down. And so I, that's real change. It's a huge journey. And I am hopeful that we'll see more of that. Here, here, I'm hopeful too. I mean, I think this summer has been so powerful for all of us to see how many people from all walks of life were committed to go out there and speak up and, you know, march. It was really something else. Well, thank you so much for being on Future Hindsight. It was really a pleasure to have you back. Oh, thanks for having me. The idea that going to church makes you more racist is definitely a surprise. But if we think of white Christian churches as places that perpetuate white supremacy, it makes sense. I had fundamentally misunderstood the relationship between white supremacy and white Christian churches as hypocritical or a product of cognitive dissonance and even confusion. This book and this conversation with Dr. Jones has really enlightened me. I highly recommend that you pick up and read Why Too Long? For yourself. Learning about the long history of white supremacy in white Christian churches has really helped me understand how white Christians can believe themselves to be faithful, upstanding followers of Christ, and yet also staunchly support a system that is profoundly and obviously unjust. Now that we've started the process of dismantling monuments to white supremacy and having the difficult conversations in the corners of our society where we haven't had them, our challenge will be to stay with the work, persevere, and to embrace the framework of justice. Next week, our guest is Mari Matsuda. She's a law professor at the University of Hawaii, William S. Richardson School of Law, an artist, and one of the founding practitioners of critical race theory. What we try to push as critical race theorists is the understanding that because of this legacy of racism, our law, our institutional structures are built in a way that reproduces racial hierarchies over and over. The traditional way of thinking about this in the law is there is racism, but it's an epiphenomena. It's an outlier. It's a bad guy that has these ridiculous racist ideas. And we have to look for that bad guy and get him to stop being racist. 
that model doesn't get at the real problem, which is if racism is systemic, it's going to show up in all our practices and it might be perpetrated by people who are good people, who don't think of themselves as racist. We talk about the origins and aims of critical race theory, inequality as a threat to freedom, and pursuing a just society. Until next time, stay engaged. I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for continuing to listen to Future Hindsight. Our executive producer is Mila Atmos. The audio producer is Peter Fedak. And our associate producers are Miriam Zumbul and Brooke Sayan. Be sure to listen to us on Apple Podcasts, futurehindsight.com, or wherever you enjoy podcasts every week. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.